The Guardian. Have you always wanted to write a novel, a history, a short story, your epitaph? Want to know how successful authors do it? It's all in a new Guardian book. I'll tell you more at the end of this podcast. Hello, it's Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. Coming up, chart topper Jake Bug drops in to pick up his new debut album. Peeper Feeders takes us back to the Halloween edition of Disc and Music Echo in the year 1970. Plus, we have reviews of new tracks from Little Mix, Angel Hayes, and Lee Gamble and Singles Club. That's all here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. Joining us this week is Ben Beaumont Thomas. Hello. 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 How are you doing, Ben? You're all right. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I've just put milk in this coffee, right? And it, it's look at that. It's got it's got a lumpy. That's semi skimmed. It's off. You got some cheesy coffee. Cheesy now. milk. Um. Anyway, so how are you? What have you been doing, Ben? I've just got back from Poland. Actually, I spent the uh, a rather debauched weekend at the Unsound Festival. Who was in playing Krakow. at the Unsound Festival? Uh, all manner of very experimental things, and then incredibly hedonistic things, and a abandoned Soviet era concrete hotel that we uh, wow. partied in, which was superb. Theo Parish, one man. All sorts of nonsense. Oh, great. around to Hudson Mohawk. It's great. Good times. What Brilliant. Was, what was the response of the locals to Hudson Mohawk and stuff like that? Glee, uh, mostly. Yeah, Good. yeah. Everyone was having a great time. It was, uh, and yeah, and then they're like underneath weird chandeliers and, and yeah, Soviet fixtures and fittings. So, that sounds great. Yeah, it was fantastic. No, but I was in Poland. Was it earlier this year, last year, uh, I went to a warehouse part? <laughs> <laughs> in uh, Poland, they're very up for it. Yeah, this is this isn't, uh, this wasn't in Krakow. This is in Warsaw, and yeah, very and also incredibly cheap. Yeah, yeah, forty p beers, yeah. danger. Uh, yes, absolutely. No, no, no. Quite, 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 quite. Well, let's start with the uh, big news story of the week, which is teenager Jake Bug. Uh, he's gone straight to number one this week uh, with his album, keeping both Mumford and Sons and Leon Lewis at bay. He spoke to Laura Barton about the album and how it came to be. Fill my head with the future. The singles like Trouble Sound and uh, Lightning Bolt, uh, they were demos, and and then other tracks on the album, they were uh, they were recorded in the studio in Liverpool with a guy called Mike Crossy, and uh, all the tracks off the previous EP and Two Fingers, the latest single. So I think there's a nice mix on there, you know. It's not like we just went into the studio and just put uh, everything down. It's mm-hmm. like uh, just mix it up a little bit. Was some of them written in the studio itself? Or? Uh, no, it wasn't. And the last track actually was uh, recorded on my iPhone. Where, whereabouts? <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> girl, <laughs> Which means I get uh, the producer credit for that one. Baby girl, will you come back home? Yeah, in the end the label decided that the best version was off my iPhone, so, which is pretty cool. For this darkest night won't ever let her be And sing fire, 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 fire Oh, I'll sing for you I heard that you had some kind of musical epiphany while watching The Simpsons and listening to Don McLean. Yeah, that's right, yeah. That's, that's a nice way of saying it. Uh, it was the song Vincent, is that right? Yeah, it was, I, I didn't really have any interest in music before. I just used to play football all the time and then, uh, yeah, I heard that song and it blew me away, really. I couldn't understand, like, that's, I guess that's one of the things that had me interested. I couldn't understand why I liked it. What else were you listening to then after your Don McLean moment? I started looking into like who influenced him, which were people like uh, Buddy Holly and the Weavers. It was an old like skiffle kind of band from the 40s or whatever from America. Sunlight, dancing in the city square. Send a, send a, come and dance the horror. One, two, three, four. 
And you grew up in Nottingham, is that right? Yeah, that You're is right. You're right about that on, on Trouble Town, don't you? Yeah, bit. Trouble Town, yeah. Can you just describe what it was like where you grew up a bit? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a council estate. I believe it was like the biggest council estate in Europe at one point. It's like 30,000 people on, on this one estate. And it's uh, it's like a small town itself. And even I could still come across like an odd street and not know what it is. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like any other estate, you know, it has its good bits and bad bits and everybody knows each other. And yeah, Triple Town, it was, it was about, it's not just about where I'm from, it's about the other places just like it. So. Stuck in Speed Bump City where the only thing that's pretty is the thought of getting out. There's a tower block overhead, all you got your benefits and you're barely scraping by. Things have gone quite crazy for you. What Have there been sort of any particular highlights for you or any kind of moments where you've thought, what has my life become? Well, obviously getting asked to do the Noel Gallagher tour was a was a big thing for me and uh, I heard that he, uh, his friends told him to check me out on YouTube and then he just gave my manager a ring and uh, asked what I was up to and asked me to go on the road and supporting the Stone Roses the other month, uh, even though it was a secret, the secret show that was that was incredible for me as well. So yeah, and there's been a few moments where it's been of a, a bit mind-boggling. Has it affected your songwriting at all, or have you not had time to even think about that? I think the only the only way I think it's affected it is um, it's hard to find the headspace at the minute because obviously you're doing a lot of gigs, you're touring around. Sometimes songwriting it can seem like easiest thing in the world and sometimes it can seem like the hardest as well. Which were the easy ones for you on this album? Lightning Bolt was very easy. <laughs> I think I was waiting for a taxi and just <laughs> put a few chords together and yeah, and then that happened like that. And uh, if I think I'm going to sit down and write a song then nine times out of ten I, I won't be able to. It's usually when I'm just like messing about on a guitar and something just sticks out or whatever. And where do you see your music moving towards now as, as you've sort of gathering more experience and working and sort of mingling with other artists that you've always admired? Well, I was thinking about going down the dubstep route. and <laughs> I wasn't thinking about going down that route, but uh, I don't know. I just want to keep making records for, uh, for as long as I possibly can, really, and tour the world, what I've always wanted to do. Silence, I was lying back gazing skyward When the moment got shattered I remember what she said And then she fled in the path of a lightning bolt That was Jake Bug uh, talking to Laura Barton. The album Jake Bug is available on Mercury Records. Now, interesting this week, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, Jake Bug is, uh, he's kept Leona Lewis off the top of the charts or whatever. This is a victory for real music over the forces of the X Factor. And other people going, God, no, of course, you know, Jake Bug is every bit in his own way as manufactured as, uh, as Leona Lewis is what are your feelings on this matter <laughs> uh it's entirely tiresome isn't it really as a debate i don't really know who cares i mean i you know jake bug isn't something i'm going to go and listen to but i guess his authenticity in inverted commas would speak to some teenagers who are maybe feeling a bit disenfranchised from the x factor and all it represents but i get the feeling that most of the people arguing about this are, are kind of embittered middle-aged men who are just kind of who really despise the kids you know and, and yeah and, I agree I, just... I, I, I think it's something uh not dissimilar to the rise of Ed Sheeran right and then you can knock Ed Sheeran you know all you want but my 10 year old niece for example has sort of cottoned on to the fact that the, the X Factor might not be quite the ticket you know what I mean and that it might be it's now so profoundly cynical its cynicism has even reached a 10 year old you know <laughs> From Crowborough in uh, in West Sussex, you know, to her Ed Sheeran. I was saying, right, Ed Sheeran actually does represent something authentic in that it's a bloke who used to go around with, you know, doing pretty much what he always did. Da 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 da. da. It hasn't really been. Nobody's told him to look like that. Fairly obviously, you know, and and so you know, it, it, there is a sort of striving for authenticity there, and I think it's a bit unfair to knock it and sort of expect, you know, the people who are buying Jake Bugs album. I think are probably a bit younger. I'm surprised that people still think of. 
something like Little Mix, which we'll get onto in a minute, mm. as being inauthentic somehow. I think it's they are deeply authentic. The hoopla they were placed into mm. is clearly constructed, but I don't think that necessarily erodes their authenticity. No, I understand what you're saying. You can divorce the person that actually succeeds at the X Factor. It, it, almost, actually, the hyper-authenticity of the X Factor, the emotional roller coaster of it that you're very easily steered along, mm. actually... I think is valid, and that's why I watch that show. That's why a lot of people watch that show. It's it's not that it's inauthentic. It's rather, yeah, hyper-authentic, and, and that makes people awkward, I think. Also, I think the people that are creating this dialogue of, of what it is to be authentic are people from British heritage rock bands that mm. were, saw this aesthetic of men with guitars and songwriting, and that was very much part of a dialogue that you would have about they've written their song, this is what it means, and I think that... Yeah, if these feel like these are your options, on one hand you see, you know, a guy with a guitar who, you know, talks about songwriting and then you have everyone who's churned out by the X Factor, that's, I guess, you could see where that falls into. But, yeah, I do think that it's not really up for debate. I think the problem with the X Factor now, because I've stopped watching it and I gave, I, I stopped watching it into this, finally sort of into this series, is that... Actually, the authenticity that you're talking about is being increasingly compromised by the fact that clearly the people that are getting through to the final aren't even kind of, you know, properly yeah. auditioning. It's just people from this sort of weird floating pool of people who go on oh, reality agree. It's, TV, it's, which is why they, end, yeah. you know, they've got all these people that have previously been on Big it's, Brother. It's certainly not, uh, as Kieran said, the, you know, Rolling Stones kind of authenticity, <laughs> it's, uh, which obviously is hugely inauthentic in itself. Rylan is but, not really of that but, school, um, no. Like you say, and like say Alexis, it's, it is completely constructed and, and dramatised, but that doesn't invalidate the human stories that have folded through that. Like, <laughs> I don't think so. Am I just really, really shallow? Well, and I'm just, just like, like I'm clapping along like a seal at the, no, the, no, no, at the I don't, emotion. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because is it now that it's become so obviously constructed and it's so obviously fixed and it's so obviously all these kind of things, does that sort of make it better? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, love, I love it for its, yeah, that, that structure. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's, it sets you up bit of Coldplay or a bit of like Sigur Ross yeah. then, the, then the Coldplay kicks in yeah. and then there's like a dubstep drop or something like and that's just the backing track let yeah. alone the tears and the <laughs> mum's dying of cancer all that stuff like it's it's an incredibly dramatic uh, TV show I think just want the fourth wall of X Factor I think there's an interesting I think there's an interesting parallel I was thinking about this when I was sort of thinking I'm going to stop watching the X Factor with the dance scene the sort of super club scene of the 90s which was something where I've never seen, you know, I, sort of, I sort of bore witness to this when I was working for Mixmag, and I've never seen a sort of youth culture, ostensibly youth culture, treat its audience with such indescribable contempt <laughs> as, as someone like Ministry of Sound did in the 90s, to the point where, and they took people for idiots, I mean, they took people for like, you know, these are monkeys on ecstasy, and it doesn't really matter what we do, they'll stand for it, cause all they want. and of course nobody's that thick. You know, yeah. you, you underestimate your audience in that way at your peril. And I wonder if, if the X Factor hasn't got to the stage where it's now so obviously underestimating its audience that even the diviest person sat at home watching it, surrounded by Susan Boyle memorabilia or whatever, is sort of going, no, come, no, come on, you can't. What do you take me for here? You for, know? for me, I think the central problem with the X Factor is the fact that everyone in this series seems to be singing out of tune quite a great deal. Really? <laughs> Are they? Yeah, the, uh, when they did Ain't Nobody uh, the weekend, that was I was just like having to keep... They, you know, they all sing like one line. It was like watching one half of a line being all oh, cringe but I'll come back one line later to see if they yeah, the next but they are putting on a show aren't they Ben I mean they look good <laughs> what a spectacle they don't look good though do they oh they do look they're good they're rubbish oh no who, who looks good Rylan Rylan's terrible <laughs> Rylan looks like Jordan <laughs> he does you see a picture they look really he's weird. had as much work done he's had as much work done and it's this sort of weird he nearly won this competition to be like Jordan's protege yeah. there's something yeah. very odd about Jordan she's like Morrissey in that respect, in the way that Morrissey only appears to like music that sounds a bit like Morrissey, right? <laughs> and there's this sort of weird thing going on with Jordan, where this guy was like, "You see the thing? They do that weird thing with their mouths, um, and maybe they can't do anything else with their mouths, you know?" <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, so it's, he, 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 no, no, okay, no. Anyway, what a what a what a wide ranging discussion we're having as a, a result of uh, Jake Bug. The album, obviously, Jake Bug is available on Mercury Records now, as you doubtless know, and you've probably already bought it. Time for Singles Club. Kieran, let's steal ourselves against the fetid stench 
of X Factor once more. Let's listen to your choice. Little Mix, the winners, of course, of, uh, of last year's X Factor with DNA. Kieran, that's your choice. Tell us why you brought that in, please. Um, well, I love pop. Um, and love I pop, think, though. yes, I think it's good to, you know, be sort of unapologetic about liking pop as much as you sort of delve into underground and obscure as much as we mm. do, Alexis. As much as I do. As much as we do. Oh, yes. we do. Sorry, yes, yes I was going to say. Because <laughs> I mostly like real music. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I just thought I thought this was good. I thought it was you know quite of the moment because of course this has come out and at the same time as Girls Aloud are staging their comeback, mm-hmm. and so there's this sort of you know revival of this you know very pop girl band sound. It's just interesting because of course Girls Aloud had that great pop formula and they were given a lot of well they're given a lot of time by the Guardian and you know lots of other publications because they did make really great well not them but you know they they were really great pop tracks that were written for them. And then sort of comparative, I don't think there was anything that was really of the same vein at that time. But this, I think, was really good. And I think compared to uh, the New Girls Aloud single, it's much, much better, which is kind of a depressing insight into how obsolete girl bands can get quite quickly. But yeah, I just thought it was really catchy. I thought it's, I mean, it's this kind of abstract notion of why something in the pop world will kind of stand out more than something else. And I think that it's just... Well, because I'm interested you think it stands out, because to me this sounds... Like virtually every other record in the charts right. at the moment, it's using that kind of dubstep, you know, bro step kind of drop thing or whatever you call it. I don't know what the proper term for it is. It's, it, you know, it's that sort of distorted production. It's that, mm-hmm. you know, to me, and that was what I did. I just think it's quite a good song. What I thought about it, why I didn't like it, mm-hmm. and I should have seen New Girls Loud single either. I thought Girls Loud at their best when they're making records like Biology and uh, Love Machine and stuff like that. There's something quite unprecedented about those records and you're a bit like, I don't really understand where you've got, why you've put these ideas together and where they're mm. coming from. And I would prefer the Little Mix record if it had a, an element of that in it. Do you know what I mean? If there's a yeah. bit of like, well, what, what, what's this? Because this is, this is like, okay, it's like a, it's like a, you know, Flux Pavilion record with, with singing over the top of it is essentially what it's like. Oh, that's not fair. Because, I mean, it does... It, well, it is. Well, it does ascribe to that formula of pop, obviously, but, you know, it still has that weird bridge where they all sing that weird aria gospel bit in, like, three minutes much, in or something. I prefer this than, uh, than Wings, which was just, yeah. like, like, aping the previous mm. paradigm of, uh, of biology-esque pop. Mm. And, and it just kind of came across to me as this, like... Boots advert version of like empowered women. I just didn't. Mm. I was just oh, cringe. But yeah, I thought this is absolutely brilliant. In fact, I'd say it's probably one of the best pop tunes I've heard this year, just because it is very strongly written, like songwriting wise. But I did notice that I went on the Wikipedia page about it. It's eight writers um, as well as the producer. Wow. And yeah, they still came up with the line. Um, it's the blue in his eyes that helps me to see the future, which really wow. makes very little sense but so who know, produced it do we know do we? Uh, I, I think they called maybe called TME they did Wings and they did uh, Read All About It by oh. Pro Green that's their other with Emily Sandy so that's their other big what, smash what was that group of writers that did Xenomania. all the girls that are they, yes. did the, they did the new ones which I didn't think it was them okay. but a lot of people who were in Xenomania at their height including the, the woman who wrote all the lyrics Miranda have, yep. have since departed leaving What's his name? Brian Higgins, is he the main guy? I can't remember what. Um, okay. is, is, I think the sole remaining member of, of, of the Xenomania team from back in the day. Which is also probably why the lyrics on the New Girls Loud song are shit. Yeah. I mean, that's it's a dreadful song. It's kind of, it's, I mean, it's called Right. Basement. It's not dreadful. It's not, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, it's not. It's just, it's just not as good as the yeah. stuff they did before. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like. You know, he says it was a short shelf life as a thing. Well, no, it's 2002, I think, Girls Aloud started. So it's actually incredibly But they, they used to make really generic stuff sound like something kind of, ooh, it was amazing because yeah. it had this edge of real camp to it, mm-hmm. yeah. which this one doesn't have. This this new one is very sort of po-faced, but also trying to be all, like, kick-ass at the same time. It's yeah, just, yeah, 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 I agree. I, I, I think it's, yeah, I, I don't think it's a very good record. But I, equally, I just think it's time that somebody in pop music took the kind of initiative to do something 
outside of making mm. a record that either sounds like a bro step record or sounds like a sort of Calvin Harris. I think the, the, the kind of six month period has now passed where we're about to have a deluge of second rate Call Me Maybe. So that's mm. been the only really like exciting yeah. innovation. Yeah, it has. It has been. That's the, the, the solitary kind of pop record that yeah. really stands out. And, and then, yeah, the imitations are surely weeks away. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, you know, another... Calvin Harrisy Ray record with a bit of a Coldplay whoa mm. bit on it as well, and I will <laughs> commit murder because I, you know, I have tried listening to charts. I feel you know very disconnected. I've never felt as disconnected from the charts as I do now, and part of me worries that's a function of age and you know. But it is just such a load of shit in the charts at the moment. I mean, it, I can never remember the charts being. What as was bad. the last thing that you really liked in the charts? I like Call Me Maybe. I think that's good. Oh. That Ellie Goulding one's good. Right. <laughs> um, trying to think now. I'm trying to think what else is it's it's all these things. I quite like I don't actually like Taylor Swift, but everyone loves that. Oh, I um, really like that yeah. Taylor Swift track, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't like that either. Maybe it is me, maybe I'm just too too damn old. No, maybe a I'm probably campaign for real now. rock. <laughs> um, the things that I I tell you what I liked, but this is like maybe last year. That was that like a G six or something? Yeah, or G like six oh, yeah. amazing. That's a brilliant yeah. record. I wrote a blog about that actually on the Guardian website if you could have check it out. <laughs> uh, about how great Dev and Kesha are because they have this monotone that's just completely coked out and faceless mm. and it's just something really really addicting and cold about it mm. that was fantastic and that's why Like a G6 was so good no I thought yeah, it was brilliant I think, I think you know I just think pop music it's, it's at a stage where it just needs to move on a bit it needs to move on from mm. sort of songs about the fucking VIP and all the yeah. hotties on it and, and it's more that the, the uh, kind of you know that sort of stuff is at least kind of tangibly aspirational what I really yeah. can't stand is just like stuff that's about in the air tonight like you know <laughs> yeah. uh, you know all the sort of Afrojack just generic yeah. neo things that come together and they're just like mm generic euphoric yeah. sentiment <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> drop and they are uh, um, pretty terrible yeah, that songs that make you feel cool when you say along to them <laughs> I, okay. I did hear on the radio on Sunday and I have to say, it's a man who gets a lot of love, and this record is fucking atrocious. That Wiley single, it's bloody. Oh, it's the so rapping bad. on it is just... A, is it Heatwave? Mm. The rapping is just indescribable. He's it's totally like someone's changes, dad having a go or something. But he, he, he's just hes one of those guys who always... He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's... Mm. You know, he's made some of the most... You think? Inc- <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's made some of the most... Like, zip files. Like, he's just some of the most incredible, sort of experimental, mad left brain mm. madness um, but then also songs on there about like going to the chip shop because res- restaurants are too expensive and he just knows and then Heatwave he's like I'm gonna I need some more money for my mm. next whatever I want to do boom generic as, as it comes yeah no it wasn't so much that it was though it was a very generic record it was like I was uh, uh, sorry, very wily esque scenario perhaps I was, I was going to uh, pick up a Chinese takeaway um, and it was on the car radio and um, I was like the lyrics this is just fucking drivel how could you, well, you sat down and wrote this did you anyway anyway this is we're all getting wildly off the point the single DNA by Little Mix is out on the 11th of November on Sony Records this in the in the highly unlikely event that you're listening to this program this podcast on speakers in your office um, I mean, I don't know what kind of place you're working in if you're doing that, but but let us assume that you are. Um, this is really, this is my choice coming up. This is really, really properly not suitable for work. Um, here we go. When I was 10, shit, I believed I could fly. I would just flap my fucking arms and try to meet with the sky. And in my mind, I'd envision that I was speaking with God. And then I'd chop his fucking fist off and beat him with mine. But this is just a fucking portion of the war with my mind. So I'ma take you fuckers back and through the vortex of time. When I was seven, envision me at the bottom of stairs. And I solemnly swear that this is the truth, no fallacy here. See, I was young, man. I was just a toddler kid. And he wasn't the first to successfully try what he did. He took me to the basement and after the lights had been cut, he whipped it out inside of my and forces cocked through my guts. See, it was weird because I felt like I was losing my mind and then it happened like it happened like millions of times and I was swear that I would tell but they would think I was lying and not a power that... Non-stop party. Um, this, that's uh, my choice, uh, Angel Hayes um, and that's uh, called Clean Now My Closet. It's from a mixtape that was released last week uh, called Classic and it's around on SoundCloud. It takes a lot for record to make me go like, bloody hell, you know, and it, this really took me aback. The rest of the track carries on very much in that vein. It's just, I, I struggle to imagine the circumstances in which I would sort of 
listen to it on one level it's a very very harrowing listen it, it appears to be all true as well uh it's an incredibly brave and sort of remarkable thing i think i think it's just a a, a very you just don't hear that many songs about child abuse written from the point of view of the victim people it's just not a subject that people talk about in pop music very much or you know they certainly don't talk about it in in um the incredibly graphic way this song does and yeah i just sort of thought it, it's the kind of thing that people should listen to at least once you know her rapping is really good and you know her her, uh, her skills as i believe they say there's an element of sort of throwing down the gauntlet about it as well i think where it's like well look this is how far i am prepared to go this is how much of myself i'm prepared to dredge up um but certainly not in a shameless oh god uh, no i didn't mean that no 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 it's like there was sort of that wave of sort of post Eminem that sort of confessional style of rapping and that seems to have died away a bit and to sort of come back you know it seems to be sort of reverting back to that I didn't mean it in a, in a kind of like this so is like a back career away, yeah, or whatever yeah. you know like the, that uh, a hyper reaction to what you've been talking about yes. in rap about all the things that you don't like about that kind of obsession with the superficial and about consumption and commodity and all those kind of things and being so overtly self-referential in this way, as it is, yeah, is really brave and very rare, like you say, and is a really uncomfortable listen. But I think it's important nonetheless. Because I can't remember good. the lyrics of "Cleaning Out My Closet" by Eminem initially, because yeah. it sounds. I was like, oh, is this just a cover of it? Yeah. And then it sort of. Oh, no, hang on, this isn't a cover of it. Yeah. This is really, you know. Um, yeah, so it makes, uh, it makes Eminem's closet look rather tidy in comparison. I mean, yeah. It's. It's. Yeah. I went back to the Eminem track and I thought, wow, this is. For this to have done so much business in the charts, it's still shocking now, actually, mm. the, the level of vitriol. But then this, this, I mean, it didn't make you feel sick in the way that this does. I mean, this, yeah. this is a, a really, really upsetting record. Like, um, I would hope very hard for most people to empathise with mm. in a way that the Eminem record is, is much more close to being becoming empathetic. Well, yes, yeah, it's more sort of teenage, you know, there's something sort of teenage yeah. solipsistic, you know, yeah. angsty about that, which there just isn't about this. You do sort of think, well, a bit like Frank Ocean saying, you know, I once fancied a bloke. Mm-hmm. You do sort of think, God, is every question that Angel Hayes now gets asked in interviews going to be about child abuse? Because it's one of those things that, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It seems sort of destined in a way to overshadow and maybe it should in a really odd, you know what I mean? It's certainly, you know, more important than what she thinks of fucking Nicki Minaj or something. So, um, you know, um, but you sort of think, God, is this the kind of thing that, that, that's going to completely overshadow everything you do? Are you going to be like the child abuse rapper now? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but also, I think having, being very angry and also making yourself very vulnerable in that way does just show, you know, a real range and a control over your emotions in a funny way, which I think, you know, inevitably because she's, you know, a female rapper and she's been, a lot's been written about comparing her to, you know, the Iggy Azaleas and Azalea Banks and Nicki Minaj's. Um, and she's always, you know, kind of prior to any of this, always come across as someone who's a lot harder and a lot more straight to the point and she does you know of course there's all those bass claps and you know all that sort of tension within her music but actually just as an artist there's something that's been a bit more fascinating about her not to say that this you know this has been the reason but I think that having that amount of control um creating your own narrative in that way should yeah throw down the gauntlet and it should say come on let's start talking about real things and that's I think the unease part of the unease of the record is that it's at once purely cathartic and announcing its own catharsis and yet the harrowing nature of all the imagery means that could she possibly ever feel to have vented those feelings even in such an articulate and forceful manner you, you and she and at the end you know she announces like I've moved on I'm stronger now mm, and all yeah. this stuff and it's like is that an overcompensation how strong is she really? And that's that ambiguity is is what makes it so uncomfortable to listen, as as well as the imagery, obviously. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I, like I said, it just totally knocked me on my ass. I wasn't really expecting, you know, if somebody sends you like a SoundCloud, you know, press yeah. office, oh, I put this on. <laughs> oh my god, you know, yeah. um, and it takes a lot. I think, you know, we, I, I tend to think um, when you look at something like punk, I think God, people got really upset. People got, it really affected people that, that somebody made a record going, God's, you know, the Queen ain't no human being, and you know, attacked in the street. God, there's nothing that can do that. And I was saying this to somebody. Unless you actually did something, unless, like, 
an artist came out and did something that was actively advocating jihad or something like that. That's the only way, I was, we were saying that's the only way you could really shock people, you could really, you know what I mean, mm. startle people. We've become very jaded about things like, to all the things that used to upset people, like, you know, sort of iconoclasm or, you know, sex or all these kind of things. And actually, I was completely wrong, because this is genuinely a really shocking record. Not in that sort of punkish putting it out there kind of way, but it is, um, it just goes to show you people's appetites aren't as jaded as I had uh, previously assumed. Um, that's around and about. It's on SoundCloud. Angel Hayes, uh, cleaning out my closet. Ben, let's hear your track. <laughs> Uh, that's Lee Gamble and Emu. Ben, I, th- I think perhaps it's fair to say that 30 seconds <laughs> doesn't get across the uh, what's going on on that track in full. Absolutely, yeah. It's part of a, a longer 12-inch that's coming out on uh, Pan Records, and it's made up of Lee Gamble's um, junglist uh, cassette tapes that he had from 94 to 96, and he's reformed these, taken samples out of it, pretty much bled all of the snares and and rhythms out of it Uh, and so you have all of the kind of breakdowns and the the eerie urban dread that was kind of at the core of jungle is really i think brought out (laughs) to the fore in this gamble's done some previously he's done some things that are very glitch based and and quite hard to hook onto and impressive in their own way but then this this is completely different and incredibly emotional and deep and memory laden music i think it's really powerful stuff yeah i really liked it it's not the easiest music in the world to get on with not much of that on the podcast today um but um yeah i i thought it was an intriguing thing to do i love the notion of the sort of the decayed sound of all these old mixtapes or things that he's taped off pirate radio or whatever for you know from as you say from 1990 whatever 1994 or something like that it's quite a long time ago now and there seems to be something intriguing about the way people's memories of being at raves or things like that 20 odd years ago would sort of vanish into the mist of time but in the same way that all these tapes have corroded you know and and, and all those sort of mixtapes either were things that sounded like I, I can remember listening to sort of pirate stations in London around that time and it either just sounded like transmissions from the future or from Mars something like that or in the case of if you were buying those big kind of mixtape sets that you used to get at sort of big raves like Fantasia and stuff like that. It was meant to be capturing a moment in time. You know, my mates used to buy them as sort of souvenirs of events that they had been to. And sort of, you could always get them at the next Fantasia. They'd be selling tapes of whoever, you know, Dr. S. Gasher or something in the last one. Um, and it's the notion of this thing that's meant to capture a moment in time or something that sounded like the future just in this decayed state that I find really interesting. I think it's a, I think it's a really uh, intriguing and, yes, uh, I find it quite moving as well. Kieran. Yeah, I like that it's adopting a conceptual take on the past in that way, you know, nodding to the past without, you know, taking samples in an obvious way. Um, and there's still kind of all those elements of those heavy dub processes, but just been turned into negative space um, and just sort of, yeah, existing in the ether and, you know, sounding a little bit warped. But yeah, exactly. You say, like, like you say, sounding abstract and memory laden and just I think, I think time. it's exciting that that memory aspect of it because we've had artists doing similar things with different um media like philip jack with vinyl or um leyland kirby with uh sort of shellac and old vinyl and then people like william basinski with with tape and decayed tape and now we're kind of moving further forward in time to this period in the 90s of of house and and bass music from then and and mu- dance music about dance music almost coming out that's that's either completely danceable or, or not at all like this, but it's referencing the past in, in a really interesting way. I mean, Burial does that to a certain extent, I think, but there's some really interesting other experiments like um, Mark Fell or someone like that who's, who's kind of taking big rave uh, textures and making them incredibly glossy and, and just slightly glitched out. And so it's 
still danceable, but it's it's dance music that's also tangibly referencing the, the past, and and that's very very different and infinitely more refreshing than um, some of these sort of pure pastiches that we've seen in recent years. A lot, a lot of house music, it's a retro sounding house music around yeah. at the moment. The, I, I mean, some of it I really like, I really like Azarian Three and things like that. But I mean, on on the other hand, there's some of it I just sort of think, well, why would you listen to this when you could go and listen to you, know, you could go and listen to Baby Wants to Ride by Jamie Principal yeah. rather than listen to something that sounds a bit like not as good a version of it. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with nostalgia, but when it's mm. when it's a pure pastiche, then it's that's just lazy and and knee jerk. Whereas if it's as this Lee Campbell track is, and as I think a lot of other things are that we're seeing coming through now, that it's more a proper exploration of memory, and that's that's really exciting. Yeah, I think it's beautiful having the presence of those ghosts of mm. you know jungle past and you know those silhouettes which are always present in sort of contemporary raves and people nodding to it but to yeah to really focus a track on all of that which is laden with all those shadows and ghosts and silhouettes is really beautiful because it sounds like that it might be the last era this might be the point I'm going to make it, there's a sense in which 1994 to 1990 about 1997 98 would be the last era you can th- maybe the last era you can be nostalgic about because the last pre-internet era yeah. it's the last time that you know cassette was really being used as a means of transmission it's it's the last era that seems a bit alien to our own you know like if when you look at the 70s particularly when you look at the 70s and makes the Jimmy Savile thing you look at you say different planet what was yeah. going on here you know it's really weird there's really odd stuff happening on the tv and then i was re- i've been reading um tracy thorne's uh, from everything but the girls memoir which is does the same thing with the 80s she talks about that kind of like this the sort of the unrevived 80s this kind of doc martin shot cardigan wearing hard left you know red wedge always doing benefit gigs and arguing about ideology and the NME kind of thing and it's just like well, there's an amazing bit in it where she goes um, she's being interviewed in Smash Hits and they're going oh you know like, what book would you recommend this is in Smash Hits and she goes oh it's this book I'm reading at the moment it's absolutely amazing readers should read it it's called um, Britain in Northern Ireland The Case for Withdrawal <laughs> and it's just like in, you know <laughs> Forget that poster of Hunky John Taylor from Duran Duran you know, and, you know and, sorry I've gone slightly off the point but what I'm saying is all those eras look strange. And the last era that looks a bit weird to us, or that looks a bit weird from this perspective, I think, is the early 90s. Everyone still smokes indoors all the time. You know, it, it just has a different texture. If you look at stuff from the late 90s, start of the 90s, kind of looks to me fairly similar to now in lots of ways. It's, hard to, it's very hard to say whether the instant feedback loop of the internet making everything instantly accessible and and feeding influence back on itself instantly from a huge variety of different years and scenes is does kind of make you think that that ongoing process will sort of erase culture and, and recycle it at the same time constantly and but I do get the sense that there is you know you only have to look at how much like websites website design for example like changes and there's yeah. you know there's such a tangible aesthetic around grey backgrounds and, and just slight glossy buttons and, and like large big buttons on things like SoundCloud for example that we've been talking about I think there are visual tropes that will and and sonic tropes that will that will still feel of, of a time I think but there will be more nuance in them because we'll be able to access them all at once so mm. yeah it's interesting it's all deep stuff <laughs> Emu by Lee Gamble is out on the album uh, Diversions 1994 to 1996 uh, that's uh, available uh, on the 2nd of November on Pan Records that's it for Singles Club if you missed any of the song's details they're all linked on our website that's guardian.co.uk forward slash music weekly Yeah, here goes a link for you. Um, we are heading back to a lost era, 1970, in the warm hands of Peter Feeders. As you may or may not be aware, Peter's stuck in a time vortex with only the music magazines of the past to keep him company. Very occasionally, we receive a signal from him. The following feature is that signal. This is Peter Feeders' parallel history of pop. <laughs> Hello, welcome. My name's Pete Fredes. Thank you very much for joining me in this parallel history of pop as seen through the pages of a music paper that came out at pretty much this corresponding time at some point in history. This week I've got... We're looking at the pages of Disc and Music Echo, an, an issue that came out on October 31st, 1970. 
so the 60s have ended, but there's still quite a lot going on. Got a big piece trailed on The Beatle Who Died on pages four to five. We'll find out in a minute then, I guess, who, who that is, if uh, somehow you don't know. James Brown is also on the cover saying that he's going to come to Britain. His new album, Get Up, I Feel Like Being a Sex Machine, is selling very well in the States and showing signs of becoming his biggest seller since Live at the Apollo. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like a, like a sex machine, man. Moving, doing it, you know. Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. Black Sabbath are, are, are breaking very big at this time, but they're not very happy because something very unexpected and rather disturbing is happening to them. They've begun to get the teeny bopper treatment and they're not very happy about What a blinking drag that is, is how we euphemistically paraphrase John Ozzy Osbourne's reaction. It all happened a couple of weeks back at a gig we played in Portsmouth. We opened with Paranoid, as usual, and suddenly the place went potty. There were kids rushing down the front, girls screaming, grabbing at us. We couldn't believe it. It was just like the teeny bopper era all over again. You'd think this is a good thing, but he's quite depressed about it. Only months previously, their first album had come out to some very poor reviews. And Ozzy says, of course we were choked off with the reviews. I suspect he probably didn't really say choked off. But, and we'd wondered if we'd done the right thing. But we had a tremendous hardcore following in the Cumberland area <laughs> and Carlisle and Workington, which uh, he felt that they'd built on. I'm Ozzy Osbourne and I'm the Prince of Darkness. Things are, he doesn't want to moan too much, though, because uh, a few months ago it was much worse. He did, Ozzy didn't even have enough money to buy some shoes, apparently. And there was one occasion where he said he walked all the way to a rehearsal in bare feet. One of the other members of the band says we had to buy him some out of our communal kitty and that meant we couldn't buy any petrol for our old van. So very hard to be in a Black Sabbath at that point in time. So we've got the... Stuart Sutcliffe is obviously the Beatle who died, and there's a lot, huge feature on him. There's an interview with his mother. And there's this... It broke my heart slightly because there's an interview with his mother, Millie, who um, is kind of photographed showing off his uh, fantastic works of art because obviously he was also an artist. And she says that Stuart rarely signed his masterpieces, and today there are dozens scattered around Britain and Europe. Some were distributed indiscriminately after his death, and others subsequently vanished from under his mother's nose as she was making tea for some visitors. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine visiting Stuart Sutcliffe's mum and then being invited in, which is amazing, and then while she goes to make the tea, just making off with one of his artworks? It's quite incredible. I like this. There's a yeah, not this in particular. It's a huge advert, a full page advert for Tom's Tom's new album. We don't, not even you don't even have to call him Tom Jones because he's that iconic, even in 1970. Tom's new album, I Who Have Nothing, dot dot dot, has everything. Let's see what they did there. This is, I love this story. Mike Darbo of Manfred Mann, he used to star as John Lennon in a, in a play based on the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby, called No One Was Saved. The two-hour play is to be staged for three weeks upstairs at the Royal Court Theatre. great thing about this story is Mike spends the whole interview disparaging the part like he's some sort of... He said yes before knowing what he was getting into and now he's desperately trying to get out of it. So the first thing I asked when I got the part was, does John Lennon know about this, said Mike at rehearsals. And it seems he doesn't know yet. I would have thought Yoko wouldn't be too happy with it. I can see her saying it's not John at all. And anyway, Paul McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby, not John. I pointed that out to them, but it seems that dramatic license covers that. I think the, the main problem with flower power movement in this country was not so much the over-commercialization of it. I think it was that it didn't really contribute anything musically. 
The other good thing about Disc and Music Echo is that you get a weekly column from a sort of foremost flower child of the day, John Peel. So you got this this morning, the mighty... See, even then, he was calling his wife Sheila the pig. He was calling her the mighty pig, even then. So this morning, the mighty pig and I found an elderly hurdy-gurdy down Westbourne Grove. There doesn't seem to be a maker's name on it anywhere, and it's singularly bedraggled, but it makes a lovely noise. Anyway, he'd like to know where he can get his hurdy-gurdy fixed. Um, I'm not sure how that panned out. Uh, I think it's more than what it did for the UK. I think in the in the long term it had a greater effect, really, than any other form of music that's, that's come along you know, in, in the last 50 years. There's um, Sid Barrett's second album comes out this week. Barrett, simply titled... And it gets a very good review in uh, disc music, which is quite forward thinking of them because uh, it's not an easy album to get into in many ways. Uh, it's four stars, which is fantastic, and uh, 11 special Sid songs crowned by Beautiful Everlasting Elephant, which is one of his best yet, with great tuba playing by Vic Saywell. <laughs> Quite a lot going on this week. Uh, if you're li- near the Pavilion Gardens in Buxton, uh, there's an all-night progressive music festival featuring Ginger Baker's Air Force, Marmalade, uh, not to forget Fat Mattress and Black Widow and Elias Hulk, whatever they are. has just come to my attention actually this is odd harrison single shot george harrison single due to be released tomorrow friday has been withdrawn uh harrison single was a double a side my sweet lord and isn't it a pity from his forthcoming solo album clearly at some point they had a rethink george was not allowed to withdraw it maybe they printed it up Mary Hopkin is very is very disillusioned because she's um, she feels like she's living a lie and she she confides to Disc this week uh, in the wake of um, obviously her huge success with uh, those were the days that um, the pure image is not one I set out to put across it's one that people have created for me I'm not really shy neither am I lonely and I'm not easily offended people are always apologising to me for saying things which they think have offended me it makes me laugh As the more she goes on the more cross she sounds actually. She's decided she's not going to do cabaret anymore. It's very discouraging because people come to eat and drink rather than listen to what you're doing. And I don't like being background music for anyone. Yeah, she did one in a London hotel made and never want to do it again. Let's have a look at what's happening in the in the world of gossip in this week's Disc and Music Echo. As tends to be the case with Disc, uh, this is kind of written in a fairly haphazard manner, and just a mishmash of kind of press releases and things that simply just entered the head of the person writing it at that moment. So, for instance, Scylla Black looking lovely as usual on the new Rolf Harris show last Saturday. That's actually his story. Elton John's in concert TV program last Friday. Excellent. His songs are far more suited to this media than live concerts. And then on to finally, obviously, on to the charts. Yes, it's number one. It's top of the pops. On the week of October the 31st, 1970, really good actually there's um, in at 30 Rider White Swan by T-Rex which is interesting because that's kind of the, that's the uh, obviously the very very beginnings of sort of T-Rex mania which within a year kind of we pretty much consumed the whole country then we've got uh, but it's a very low entry so, so we've got things like Julie Do You Love Me by White Plains and Heaven Is Here by Julie Felix going in higher than higher than T-Rex and the big climbers that week we also War by Edwin Starr which has gone up 12 places to number 14 Patches by Clarence Carter has gone up seven places to number three and uh, up one place to number one that week. Uh, Deep Purple with Black Knight. Um, So you can see sort of heaviness really encroaching at some speed into the music scene. We've also got at number one we've got um, in the album charts, we've got Paranoid. Uh, by Black Sabbath, uh, which is just above 
Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water album. That concludes the week in pop as seen through the pages of Disc and Music Echo magazine on October the 31st, 1970. Safely. A warm thanks to Pete Perfidis. We hope to hear more from him next month. Time for your comments. Last week, of course, Charlotte Church joined us. The 16th Beatles says, not a fan of Charlotte Church's music, but I commend the pod. Commend. The pod for doing something different and having a mainstream pop act on the show, and she actually sticks around to review singles and knew quite a lot about Dan Deacon. She was great, wasn't she? She was brilliant. I really liked she wasn't, wasn't she nice? I mean, A, she was a nice person, and B, she knew a lot about... Music. Not that we should be surprised by that, but, you know. Yeah. There you go. Fantata agrees. Charlotte Church was great. It's nice to hear she's exploring some interesting music and going in a different direction. On Singles Club, said, Night Engine sound like a Bowie tribute at Scary Monsters era, I'd say. Fashion? Rather than station to station. I've never even heard of Bellowhead, but I seem to find myself more and more drawn to folk these days, so I'll be checking them out. This is why I listen to the podcast. Excellent. Um, and adding to the positive vibes, St. Paulie says... Bellowhead are absolutely brilliant. One of the best live acts I've seen in over 20 years of gigs and all incredibly talented musicians doing something genuinely different and exciting with folk music and bringing it to a new audience. It's quite rare that a band comes along who really aren't like anyone else, but Bellowhead definitely are a real one-off. Thank you for all your comments. Keep leaving your thoughts at guardian.co.uk forward slash musicweekly. Before we go, my apologies to... Uh Tonight Engine, who aren't from Norwich, they're from London. <laughs> this big thing about how amazing it was that a band who sounded like this came from, you know, out, you know, they're not from Norwich, they're from London. They played their first gig in Norwich. This is where the confusion came from. Uh, my apologies to the members of Night Engine and, and anybody else who was upset by that. I don't know why you would be, but maybe. Anyway, that's it for this week. My thanks to Kieran and Ben, to Laura Barton, to our guest Jake Bug, and to Peep Feeders. Music Weekly was produced by Matt Hill and Pascal Wise. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Hi, I'm Simon Hattonstone. I'm a Guardian journalist and I occasionally write books that are not read by many people. Let me tell you about some of the great advice from those who really know how to do it. Top name authors that you can read in a new Guardian book called Write. It's brilliant. Funny, perverse, bonkers and wise. If it sounds like writing, then I rewrite, says Elmore Leonard. There's an Enright for despairing writers. Remember, the first 12 years are the worst. So, don't put off that dream of winning the Booker Prize any longer. Get inspired by our new Guardian book, Write. You can get yours for half price, £6.50, using promo code PODCAST. To order, visit guardian.co dot uk slash bookshop anytime up to the end of october